the years I've often said that I have kind of a love-hate relationship with my cars. Uh, most of them, I've had lots of cars, um, most of them, most of the time, serve me quite well. But sooner or later, every single one of them leaves me disappointed. Maybe you understand what I'm talking about. A number of years ago, I got into my beloved 1986 Honda Accord with almost 200,000 miles on it. It was a while ago. Uh, and got ready to start a new day. So I put my key in ignition, turned it, and Nothing. So I tried again, turned it, nothing. Not even that clicking sound you get when your battery's like really old, nothing. Now my typical first response to a car problem, any car problem, mo noisy muffler, uh, scraping brakes, heater that won't heat, is simply to ignore it. <laughs> I pretend it's not happening and hope that either the car heals itself, <laughs> I believe in healing, or I get so used to the sound that it just seems normal after a while. I know it's not the smartest thing, but that's what I do. In fact, I once drove a car until a wheel literally fell off while I was driving. <laughs> Happened right in Geneva, so I'm capable of that. Uh, but it's hard to remain in a state of automotive denial when your car won't even start. Uh, even I know the difference between mostly dead and all the way dead. So I got up my jumper cables and um, hooked up our car, my Honda, to our family minivan and tried again. Also, nothing. Not even a little clicking sound. So I'm no longer starting my day with optimism and joy, something quite different. So I was taking my, our, took our minivan to the local car parts store to buy a new battery. Now, at that time, I'd never purchased a new car battery before, ever in my whole life. Um, so I had no idea what I was looking for. But do I ask for help when I go into the car store? No. Are you kidding? And have some car guy ask me a technical question like, what kind of battery are you looking for? I, uh, I don't know, double A, D? I'm not sure. I, don't have, no, I have no idea. <laughs> but luckily for me, there was this big black binder that had a list of every single car battery and what model car they fit and how to install them. So I found the battery I needed, put it in my cart. And then I noticed as I put it in my cart, there was a sticker right on top of the battery that read... Danger, explosive gases, and sulfuric acid can cause burns, blindness, and serious injury. I had no idea. And I had a choice to make. A, I could think to myself, well, what do they know? I don't know if anybody who's ever uh, had a, had been blinded by a car battery. They're just trying to scare me. I'll do it my way. Or B, I could choose to trust whoever responsible for putting that uh, sticker on that battery and that they knew a thing or two more about car batteries than I did. Therefore, I should pay attention to the instructions, follow them to the letter, and avoid blowing up both myself and my car. So that's what I did. I followed the instructions, and a small miracle happened. Put that battery in my car, and not only did my car start up, but I felt like a master mechanic. So <laughs> that's what, that, that actually leads us into our story today. Uh, actually, it leads us into our story toward the end of today. But to, we're in a series now, as you all know, called The Gospel in Genesis. And so far, just by way of summarizing, we saw that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis takes us through uh, six days of creation that, that have kind of a rhythm to each day. And God said, let there be dot, 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 and it was so. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and morning, the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day. 
It was good. So the good news in Genesis is that the Creator is intentional. That everything that is comes from His mind, His heart. He's intentional and intelligent. He created all that is. On the sixth day, we saw then that God created man in His own image, male and female. And He said it is very good. And the good news here is that we were each created in the image of God and have eternal value in His eyes. Every single one of us. Then in chapter 2, last week we saw that chapter 2 begins with the seventh day and that God rested from all the work that He had done. And the good news there is that in Christ, God has finished the work of salvation and we can rest in the work that He has done. If you didn't hear Pastor Joe's sermon last week, go back and listen to it. It was very, very good. Now today we move on in chapter 2 to the next section. We're going to read Genesis 2, 4 through 17. It's a rather long passage. I'm going to read the whole thing, make a couple of comments as we go through, and then we're going to dig in. Okay, Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Let me stop there. A couple of things we need to notice here. The phrase, these are the generations, can be translated, this is the account of. And in Genesis, we'll see this phrase several times if you read through the whole book. And each time, it's simply a signal that the author's beginning a new topic or a new section. So this is actually the introduction of the story of Adam and Eve. This verse also is composed in a very unique poetic way that we can miss completely uh, in our modern culture and our language. It's called a chiasm, and it's a rather sophisticated form of writing. It's when the words of parallel lines are repeated but in reverse order. Let me, let me show you how it works here. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the ancient Hebrew reader would go, oh, I see what the author's doing here. The point was to, was to emphasize what comes in the middle of the phraseology. And at the middle of the sentence is the Lord God who created. So he's the center of the whole story. Verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now right here you might be thinking, wait, wait, what? Didn't God already do this back in chapter 1? Yes. Back in chapter 1 we saw that God created the water system on the second day, that he created vegetation on the third day. So what's going on here? Why this little repeat here? Well, this is actually a kind of continuation of the creation account, but from a different perspective. It summarizes what's gone before in chapter 1 and then begins to zero in focus in on more detail on the pinnacle of creation, that is the creation of humankind. Verse 7, Then the Lord God, I'm going to stop again, because this is the first time we see both Lord and God mentioned. In Genesis 1, we see God, but not Lord God. The Hebrew here is Yahweh Elohim. Now, Elohim is the general word for God. And that's why we see it in Genesis chapter 1. It's used for the creator of all things. But here in chapter 2, we see Yahweh Elohim. Now, Yahweh was the personal name of God. And it's used to refer to the God of Israel as opposed to the God of all the surrounding pagan nations who also had names. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Because here, the story is about God's creating human beings for a personal relationship with him. So his personal name is used. Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God formed a man 
from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there were the, there, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so this passage uh, revolves around three things. The man, the garden, and the command. So we're going to begin with the man. I came across this little, little um, imaginary story a number of years ago. Um, a group of scientists, and it's a fictional story, so a group of scientists got together and decided that science had learned so much about the universe that they no longer needed God to explain everything. So they went to God and said, we're to the point now through our learning that we can clone people, we can decipher DNA, we, and we know the genetic codes. We've decided we no longer need you. And God listened very patiently, and after the scientist was done talking, God said, very well, how about this then? Let's say we have a man-making contest, to which the scientists said, that's great, okay, you're on. And then God said, but I have some ground rules for this contest. We have to do it just like I did back in the beginning. And the lead scientist said, no problem, sure. And he bent down and grabbed himself a handful of dirt, and God said, whoa, whoa hold on there. You've got to go get your own dirt, he said. I like that little story. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man. The Hebrew word for a man is Adam. So actually, Adam was named for what he was, a man. From the dust of the ground, the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. It sort of rhymes with Adam. So Adam is the man taken out of the ground, Adamah. And breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now we saw back in chapter 1 that God created human beings in his own image, male and female. He created them. But here in chapter 2, the author zeroes in with a little more detail, and we see two unique things. Scripture says God formed the man. Now we can miss that, but back in chapter 1 we saw that when God created all other living things, he did so by speaking. And God said, let such and such light the seas, the dry land, vegetation, animal life be, and it was so. He spoke, and it was so, but here we see something different. God formed. Now the Hebrew word here is used most often to describe a craftsman like a potter shaping an earthen vessel on a wheel, like an artist. Now, could God have just spoken the man into existence? Of course he could. He spoke the entire universe into existence. He could have spoken the man into existence, but he didn't. And this is intentional. To form, to shape is more personal. It's more intimate. It's as if God gets his metaphorical hands dirty and I'm reminded of a story that comes to us in the Gospels in John chapter 9. Remember where a blind man is brought to Jesus and Jesus spits on the ground 
and uses the saliva to form mud and rubs it on the man's eyes as he heals him from blindness. So where is the good news here in that word formed? If we go to Psalm 139, we read, For you created my inmost being. Listen, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place where I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The good news here in Genesis is that you were formed, shaped, knit together by God. The good news is you are known by God, and you have been known by God since you were in your mother's womb and before, and you are loved by God. That's good news. The second thing, unique thing we see here is that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Also absolutely unique in all creation. God has created all the living creatures of the sky, all the living creatures of the sea, all the living creatures that creep on the ground and walk on the earth. But the only creature God breathed into is the human being, the man. And the Hebrew word there means to blow or to inflate. The Hebrew word translated as breath is neshama, which can be translated as breath or wind or spirit. And here we see an echo of this in John chapter 20, verse 22. After the resurrection, we read, And with that he, Jesus, breathed on them, his disciples. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible here is simply telling us that as human beings, we are uniquely created by God with the capacity for a unique relationship with him. This is the spiritual dimension of human beings. I've mentioned uh, earlier this year that back in, uh, when I was in Nepal last September, uh, the group I was with visited this sacred site of Hindu worship. This is a 140-foot statue of the Hindu god Lord Shiva that's just outside Kathmandu, Nepal. Uh, every human civilization throughout all of history has worshipped something. Every single one. Anthropologists will tell that. Well, how they can tell a community or settlement was human is that there are objects of worship. There are, there are idols or there are, there are uh, incense burnings and things like that, altars. It might be the ancient Akkadians who worshipped uh, the god of the sky, or the Babylonians who worshipped the god of the moon, or Marduk, the king of all gods, or the Egyptians who worshipped Ra, the sun god. We even see this still today. Now, we don't build in our culture little idols, although many places in the world things like that exist. In our culture, it's more like people who say, you know, the universe told me, or the universe has a plan for me. Worship the universe, or they worship their wealth, or in our culture, they worship themselves. Every human being worships something. That is something that orients our lives, gives us a reason to live, and brings meaning to our existence. Genesis explains why God breathed into us his breath. We are hardwired for spirituality, we are hardwired to worship. The good news here is that the Bible tells us who it is that we are to worship. Second thing we see in this passage is the garden. The garden. Many of you know, if you follow uh, any kind of social media, that my wife, Lorene, right down here, just returned from a 12 or 13 day trip to Asia, to Malaysia and Singapore. She traveled with our oldest son, 
uh, Jordan, his wife Hanukkah, and their little three-month-old son, uh, Kish. Now, they made the trip largely to visit uh, family and relatives in Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. Uh, the lady in the middle is um, my wife's aunt, the sister of her dad, uh, and, and her name is Estelle. And they have many other relatives and family members and friends who live in that part of the world. Uh, Lorraine grew up over there and spent a lot of her early life in that part of the world. Now, if you've never traveled to Singapore or Kuala Lumpur, it's very tropical, warm all year round. Um, while they were there, it was like 87 degrees, and it rained almost every afternoon. So everything grows there. They, they posted photos almost every day, and if you saw those photos, the impression you get is that Kuala Lumpur and Singapore aren't just cities. They're like huge gardens filled with every kind of plant you can imagine. This uh, is called the Rain Vortex. This is the world's tallest indoor waterfall. It's 130 feet tall, and it's in the Singapore airport. Right? It's an enormous enclosed space filled with more plants and flowers than you can even imagine. And they posted this photo, and I was studying this passage. It made me think of the Garden of Eden, how it's described. Verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden, not a waterfall, but a river, watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromic, re, uh, aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Here we just see that God prepared a place for the man. The whole creation narrative at this point is about the eternal God who exists before and outside of time and space preparing a place for the pinnacle of his creation, human beings, to dwell. Animated by his breath, created in his image, this is where they're to live and to flourish. Everything created for us. Now Genesis speaks of a specific place, a garden filled with an abundance of everything needed for human life, an abundance of food, an abundance of water, an abundance of beauty. I wonder if this makes you think of what Jesus said in John chapter 14 when he said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there, watch, to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be, may be where I am. If you are a believer today, Jesus even now is preparing a place for you. It's an echo of what happens in Genesis chapter 2. A place is being prepared for us to flourish. And then we see two trees. The tree of life. This seems to be the tree that sustained physical life. There are many scholars who believe that this tree offered Adam and Eve immortality in their physical life. But as we'll see a little bit later in chapter 3 in a few weeks, when they sinned and were expelled from the garden, death became inevitable because they no longer had access to the tree of life. But the good news is we see the tree of life again come at the very end of the story, book of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The, to the one who is victorious... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, there it is, which is in the paradise of God. 
We see a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we'll see in a moment, this is the tree God eventually commands Adam not to eat from. Now, scholars think this is because the knowledge of that tree belonged only to God. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, this was the fundamental temptation of the serpent in the garden. You can be like God. We also see four rivers. One river flowing through and out of Eden where it divides into four. Why such detail, a whole paragraph about these four ancient rivers? Some see significance in the names of the rivers. The Pishon uh, means increase. Gihon means bursting forth. Tigris means rapid. Euphrates means fruitfulness. Some think it mean, it, it, the meaning comes from the direction that the four rivers flowed to the four corners of the earth that God intended to bless the whole world through Eden. And why the mention of gold, aromatic resin, and onyx? I think Genesis is just telling us that God prepared a place for the man, created in his image, and provided that garden with great abundance, an abundance of both water and beauty. Water is necessary for all physical life, and throughout Scripture we see that water is also a symbol of spiritual life. In John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, he writes, he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the waters of a great river show up again at the end of the story. And the description of the new heaven and new earth in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Very highly symbolic language, but reaching back into the garden in Genesis 2 to tell us that God has and will provide everything needed for abundant life. And then lastly, we see the work of the garden. Now, here I think we might be a little bit surprised, at least some of us. Did you know there was work to do in the Garden of Eden? We often think of work as hard and stressful and painful, and it is in our current experience. But that's not God's original intent and design for work. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That is, Adam has a work to do before the fall into sin, before the fall of all creation. This tells us that work is good. God works in his creation. The Bible says he's working to this day. Adam was created to work. Work is a gift of God and is an expression of relationship with God. Work only became painful toil after the fall of sin. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. In fact, in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells us that all legitimate work is a gift of God and honors God. In Colossians 3, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. You know, in our culture, when someone dies, it's very common for us to say uh, a phrase, rest in peace. May he rest in peace. R.I.P. Walk through a cemetery. You see it every, every second or third uh, tombstone. 
R.I.P., rest in peace. And that's true. The Bible says we will rest in heaven. Revelation 14 says we will rest from our labor. But did you know we'll also have work to do in the new heaven and new earth? I hope that doesn't disappoint you. We will have work to do. Revelation 22 says his servants will serve him. But our service, our work, will not be toil and labor. It won't be frustrating or degrading. Our work will be satisfying and glorious and joyful. Think of the best day you ever had at work. When everything went right, everything was successful, and you felt just energized, and then multiply that by 10,000. That's what our service and work will be like. Because we were created to serve. Created to work. So we see the man... We see the garden, and the last thing we see here in this text is the command. The command. When one of our boys was just a toddler, I don't know, like two years old, he developed a fascination with electrical outlets. You know, like most parents, we'd put these little plastic protectors in all the outlets. You you remember these little things? You print them in everywhere. Now we're grandparents. We have them all over our first-level house. We stick these in all the little outlets, right, to protect them because they're dangerous. But this, our son uh, loved flipping these little things out. He discovered he could, he could take his fingernail, put them right inside the little, and he could flip them out on the floor. And he did it constantly. He had all kinds of things to play with. He had all kinds of balls and bats and toys and trucks, and, but he wanted to do this. He wanted to flip these things out of the floor. So we'd say, no, we put them back in. He'd flip them out again. I'd say, no, I'd put it back in. And I'd slap his hand slightly. He'd look up at me like, you better slap me harder. I'm going to flip that little thing out because this is fun. <laughs> now, I couldn't explain to him why he shouldn't. I couldn't explain to him in a way he could understand why electricity was dangerous. He did, I just needed him to trust me. To trust me. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are to free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Here we see what I'm simply calling the limit of God. The limit of God. Here's a question. Why would God put a tree in the garden, this perfect place, and then prohibit them from eating from it? Why would God do such a thing? Now, before we answer that question, I want you to notice the great freedom of the garden. God says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any one of them. You can have all of it, except that one. I think of it like a salabar. Remember we used to have salabars? It's another thing that COVID robbed us of, but salabars. Okay, think of a salabar. God says you can eat everything on the salabar. You can have anything from any little bin you want. You can have the lettuce, the tomatoes, the croutons, even those little corn things. Anybody actually eat those things, those little, you know, those little things that look like corn? Just don't eat the garbanzo beans. You can have everything else. Again, why would God place a limit in all this freedom? Let me suggest three things. We'll talk about some of these things as we continue forward in the series. First, we cannot know the gift of freedom fully without the gift of limits. We cannot know true freedom without the gift of limit. We'll unpack that in a couple of weeks. Second, remember the image of God. We're created in His image. Part of that image is the capacity to choose, the capacity to love, the capacity to trust. So God's limit invites us to experience those very things. Choice, love, and trust. Third, 
God is establishing his holiness and his authority. By establishing a limit, God is making clear that he is God and we are not. That sounds simple. It's the fundamental lie of our culture. You can be like God. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Finally, we see that the limit of God is the love of God. The limit of God is the love of God. Why do parents establish limits for their children? Don't play with electrical outlets. You know, don't ride your bike in the street. Don't get in the car with strangers. Do we do this? Do we place these limits around their lives so we can destroy their joy? Do we do it so we can make their lives miserable? No, of course not. We set limits for our children because we love them and we want their lives to be good. The limit of God is for our good and flourishing and his limits are always an expression of his love. This is significant. We get into next week and the week after. Let me wrap it up with this little story. Many years ago when I was a uh, youth pastor here at Chapel Street, um, then First Baptist of Geneva, a new kid started coming to our youth group on Wednesday night. I had just a couple of conversations with him. His family didn't go to our church, but he started coming. And I knew just enough about his life to know there were some real problems at home. Well, um, after one of the gatherings on Wednesday night, all the kids were kind of hanging around. I was kind of listening in on the conversation. And they got this talking about curfews and the different levels of curfew their parents had put into their lives. One would say, oh, yeah, i got to be home at 9 o'clock on Friday night. I can't believe it. And then the other would say, oh, I, get, I, get, I can stay out till 9.30. Another one says, well, I, I, can, I have to come home at 10 o'clock. And then this kid, this new kid, piped up and he said, I don't have a curfew. And the whole conversation stopped. And all the kids looked at him like, what? What do you mean you don't have a curfew? He said, I can come home anytime I want. I can stay out all night if I want. And the kid's like, whoa, that's amazing. And one of them said then, your parents are so cool. But I knew something about that young man that the other kids didn't know. I knew that his parents weren't very cool. In fact, they were both alcoholics. And they set no curfew for him because they didn't care. They didn't care what happened to him. And he knew it. He was one of the saddest kids I ever met in youth ministry. He was crying out for some sort of boundaries, some sort of limits on his life, because that would tell him that somebody loved him. But he didn't have that. The good news of Genesis is that a good God created us for relationship with himself. That he's prepared a place of great abundance for us. But he's also established limits. And those limits are an expression of his love and they are for our good. When we trust his limits, his truth, and only when we trust his limits do we experience the freedom of the abundant life he wants to give. That's the good news of Genesis. Will you bow with me as we close? Lord God, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the abundance of your creation, the abundance of your provision, the abundance of your beauty, the abundance of your love. And we thank you for loving us enough to give us limits. Now, if we're honest, we don't tend to like limits very much. We push against them, we fight against them, we rebel against them, but teach us to trust that your limits are good, even when we may not fully understand. Because we can trust that you are good and that you want good for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Just prior to the benediction, I want to uh, thank you on behalf of our whole church family for your ongoing generosity uh, to the ministries of the church. And I also want to let you know that if you would like to uh, share in some way in the crisis that's happening in Turkey and Syria, we're putting together a response, and the way you can participate is just make a gift toward our Serve the World Fund, which is a, a separate fund we use for this kinds of thing. So if you'd like to do that, you can do that uh, by just writing Serve the World on a check, or you can go to the, the website or the app and just indicate that fund uh, for your gift, and we'll make sure that's where it goes. Receive now today's benediction. May we go now in the name of the Lord God of all creation, who sent his Son, our Lord Jesus, that we might have life and have it more abundantly.